Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Well, welcome to 2020. So what's it going to be like? If austerity is gone, will we see a bright future for Britain? Or will it be dragged down by Brexit? Is this the year that Donald Trump gets re-elected? Or will the US economy take a turn for the worst and drag him down with it? And will housing bounce back in Australia and see their economy back on an upward trajectory? And climate change, is this the year we finally start to take notice? And if so, what does that mean for the economy? I'm Phil Dobby and welcome to the first debunking economics podcast of 2020 with Professor Steve Keen. So 2019 feels like it's been a fairly rocky year, Steve. I mean, we've, we've had part of Europe on the uh, brink of recession. Donald Trump, of course, has been declaring trade wars on China and uh, other parts of the world as well. And we've had Brexit and now we've got Boris Johnson. I'm not sure which is worse. Uh, so, so what of 2020? Are things going to die down or are they going to get worse or will it be more of the same? Uh, I mean, for example, you know, are we heading for a recession? If, I mean, if you believe mm. in trade cycles... We can't be heading for recession because we really haven't climbed. We haven't had that growth spurt from uh, from the last recession. Yeah, well, what we? we've had is uh, you know ten years of of, of stagnation. I mean, yeah. the term which uh, the mainstream used this is Larry Summers in dragging it back out of the nineteen thirties when it was first brought up by Alvin Hansen is secular stagnation. That's not cyclical. They say there's been a, a secular change, and when you look at the explanation that Hansen gave for it, and that Larry Summers has pretty much regurgitated. That's a good word, isn't it? Um, is uh, is basically that uh, p- parents are having less kids and engineers are having less ideas. Mm. And because population growth and technical change are the two drivers of economic growth. Nothing to do with the economy then. Nothing is everyone to do with the economy. Fault. No, nothing the economists did wrong. Just a, a secular trend to lower growth. Right. And, and that's, that's what Hansen actually used back in, first of all, in 1934 to try to explain the crisis to 1933 when unemployment rose from recorded level of 0% to 26% over, over two and a half, three years. Then they all thought it was all hunky-dory by 1936 in America it had fallen to 11%. So we've gone from 26% to 11% unemployment. And thank God the last was all behind us. Um, mainstream economists persuaded Roosevelt to get back to balance the budget again. Roosevelt attempted to do that. So the stimulus from the New Deal, which was worth about only about 3% of GDP. It's quite a small mm. level compared to what we're used to these days. Uh, he went back to trying to balance the books again. Unemployment shot up from 11% to 20 Right. But where we are now, I mean, it doesn't feel like we're on the brink of a recession no, because no. employment is holding up yeah, everywhere. Yeah. In and fact, in many places, it's getting better. Like yeah, in the yeah. US, even in Australia, which you'd say is not in a good place, people mm. are still employed. Yeah, and I think um, I mean, this is partly the impact. If we had lower growth... Uh, than, than we had previously, but lower population growth as well. So that the parents having less babies is, is true in most of the OECD. Australia's managed to fudge it by having population growths. Mm. Uh, so when you look at when you take our population growth out of Australian economic performance, because it's got almost the highest level of population growth in the world, but it's almost all driven by migration. So you take that out, and Australia's been what the macro business has been calling a per capita recession for a year or two now. Mm. Uh, so that's a bit of a fudge of the figures, but. Globally, yeah, it's true. Lower population growth, 
and that does mean less people and that will mean less out less output less heads producing output so but at the per capita level there's also been a decline in the per capita rate of growth so if you look at the average before the financial crisis for america for about the last 20 years the average rate of growth was about 3.2 percent per annum now it's running at 1.7 percent so it's a substantial fall yeah but you've also had but we're like, getting by aren't we if we're like getting, if we look yeah. in america for example i mean america's yeah growth is like you know, it's yes, it's it's not not really hitting two percent yet. Certainly mm. not up to up to three percent, uh, and yet you know um, all the other indicators are good. Yeah. You know, employment's strong, personal consumption's okay. Well, the one, the, the, uh, people the, are buying shares like they're yep. going out of fashion. Well, they're back, they're selling shares like they're out of fashion because the buyer of the shares is the financial sector, and the reason the financial sector is buying shares is because of quantitative easing. Mm. So I've seen QE as being flattening out the business cycle because the government's using part of the government is using the capacity the government has to create unlimited amounts of money to pump up asset markets. This is quantitative easing. And I made the claim back in 2016 that once they started, they'd be stuck with it. It was a pack with the devil. Because if you try to pull out of it, the asset markets which get pumped up by it will collapse. And the first response of the central banks, they really don't react to unemployment until it gets critical. But a fall in the stock market, they panic and go back into quantitative easing again. So if Australia goes down that road, which the RBA is talking about, two more rate cuts and then they're they're going to look at uh, quantitative easing. Yeah. That's going to be a big mistake for Australia. Well, it'll have this, it'll, it's, quantitative easing does work at great expense in mm. terms of transferring money from the real economy to the financial sector. Because what my basic logic is for QE is that uh, America is doing a trillion dollars a year worth of QE. That means they're buying a trillion dollars worth of bonds off the financial sector. That means the financial sector has its bond count go by down by one trillion and its cash count go up by one trillion. Now, bonds, even if they're dodgy, they're still earning an income flow. So they've gone from having an incoming asset to a non-incoming asset. What do they do with the income, non-incoming asset? Buy shares. They buy shares, which yeah. drives up the share market. Mm. Now, that has pumped up the S&P from, you know, 666, which is the bottom I'll never forget because of it's, you know, the mark of the devil, to about three or four times that. Yeah. And then if you look at what happens, the finance sector people get wealthier. Well, they spend a bit of that. They buy an extra Lamborghini. Uh, they get somebody to clean the Lamborghini for them. That triples back into the real economy. And if you do like a very, very, you know, back of the envelope type calculation, you can sort of say, well, a trillion dollars per year, of QE may give a hundred billion dollars per year worth of. Didn't you just argue just now for trickle down economics? Didn't you just? It uh, trickles down, but ninety percent of it remains in the top champagne glass. Right, and that's okay. the trouble. And so, so this means that the US is going to do okay then in, in twenty twenty. I don't expect a recession in the US. Donald Trump's going to get in again because the economy's doing well, and he's tweeting about how magnificently Quite it's doing. Possibly. I mean, mm. if he, he might he has a battle against Bernie, he might he might lose. But I think if he fights again, Biden, he'll almost certainly win. Um, so, like, I'm expecting another four years of Donald Trump. And it's interesting, isn't it, that all the tariffs that he's imposed, yeah. the US seems to be doing quite well out of it. Well, see, this is the, again, I wasn't fussed about the trade war thing because the reason economists obsess about trade wars and say it's going to, you know, we're all going to be ruined tomorrow. The, you remember the predictions for Brexit the day after the vote went through, the economy had collapsed? Mm. Well, that worked out well, didn't it? Uh, I was one of the two economists saying there would be no particular big deal, myself and Richard Werner. Richard did the econometrics on it. We both say credit's the major driver. No particular change in credit, no particular change in the economy on the other side of the vote. Same thing for the actual impact of Brexit. Uh, if you were going back to the 1950s when tariff levels were 30, 50, 40, 50 percent and you're going to go from zero tariffs 
exporting to the U to UK to uh, Europe to 30 40% then yeah that's big okay mm. at the moment it's sort of 2 and 3 yeah but with china we are talking about that sort of level you know they are getting up to that sort of level well that's that's what trump's doing in the, in the war itself but overall uh, the economists obsess about specialization and fundamentally ignore investment Mm. I think savings becomes investments. There's more savings, more investment, simple. Uh, they obsess about specialisation, so they get really worried about a trade war and think it's going to have a huge impact. Uh, most of the time, most of the impact of a trade war is taken by the, by the distributors. They've got a large profit margin. The, the, the tariff level goes up. They've got to pay more for some of their inputs. Uh, they tend to absorb that in their margin. Not much happens to consumers. And we also see currency shifts as well, of course. So, Current, yeah, so yeah. That, that can adopt and some. And that, that goes the opposite some. direction. That yeah. sort of compensates for the tariff change. So I wasn't particularly... You know, it, yes, it's annoying. It's going to damage supply chains. Uh, and part of the reason he's damaging supply chains is the belief this will mean that... American manufacturers relocate production from China back to America, which they may or may not do. Mm. They've suddenly got to do some investment. So it's it's a it's a swings and roundabouts number, and there are you know there are more swings than roundabouts. I can see it damaging the economy, but nothing like the level of neoclassical economists predict. Right. So not a bad year for the U.S. Then. Apart not from, not apart a bad from- year, but the, most likely the the big thing that's happening is financial fragility. Because what my my main focus when I do my Minsky work is on the macroeconomics of it. But there's also how how robust is your financial sector, and that comes down to how volatile is the valuation of the assets they have, mm. uh, and uh, because the assets. A financial institution must have positive net worth. Its assets must exceed its liabilities or it has to declare bankruptcy. The rest of us can survive with negative equity. Okay, we actually do that. If mm. we didn't have a government, we'd all be in negative equity. The banks would be in positive equity. We'd be in negative equity. That's a given uh, in the absence of government money. Yeah. And no. that's what's one of the fundamental institu- instabilities of capitalism that Nostrians don't have their heads around, nor do neoclassicals. But with the with the banks uh, being in positive equity, but with assets learning such a low level, a lot of what they're doing is they're buying junk bonds, uh, they're taking risky ventures. Mm. So that means that it's quite possible for banks to suddenly find that asset they purchased is garbage and bang, the price collapses, and then they're in negative equity and they go bankrupt and there could be a chain reaction. Right. And, I mean, and that's not just in the US. That could happen anywhere in the world. Yeah. Because we've got banks, low interest rates everywhere and banks are yeah. clawing around wondering how do we make money. That's right. And German banks are looking like particularly vulnerable. So mm. there could be, I think there'd be, I, I, w- I would rule out a serious recession, but I would not rule out financial crises, right. strangely enough. What's the difference? Well, economic recession means you people get kicked out of their jobs in the manufacturing sector. Demand collapses, unemployment rises at that level. This is a financial sector. It will collapse, and the, the, the central banks will run to the rescue, uh, save the depositors, uh, as long as they're not Greek or, Cret- or Cretans, <laughs> um, and, and the economy will continue on with a few people uh, looking for jobs in the finance sector. Mm. But nothing like a huge downturn. In well, that's going to be interesting, isn't it? So if the German banking sector or the – well, we know the Italian banking sector has been close to crisis for, yeah. for some time now. If, if, if Germany's in the same boat, I mean, it's, it's hard, isn't it, for them to bail out German banks when saying, well, we haven't done it for other banks in other parts of the uh, European community. Yeah, so I can see some tension in the European Union over that. Mm. You know, why did you risk, risk a Handel's bank and you didn't rescue the bank of the Italian banks? So, so the idea of a recession in Europe 
itself is is looking less likely than I, I mean think, think, Germany's think, been so close to it this year. I, I think a recession in Germany in, in Germany and most of Europe is probable right. because of the impact of the Maastricht Treaty and the limitation on government deficits. Right. Nothing to do with the trade war. Nothing to do with the fact that trade they're, war they're an be, export dependent nation. Trade trade war will be icing on the cake of some to some extent. So I think a recession in Germany is is probable. The main cause is the Maastricht Treaty and the, and the limits on government deficit spending, right. rather than the trade war. But the trade war will add to it. Well, I mean, they, I mean, even before the Maastricht Treaty, they just don't want to spend, do they? Yeah. So I mean, they're not even getting to buffering levels that might be determined in the Maastricht Treaty. The German government just does not want to yeah. uh, create any stimulus. Yeah, and the only way they managed to balance the books on that front is the trade surplus. They've had a huge trade surplus, but that is now declining. Mm. Uh, like. And they're like even things like in the in the car industry, they 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 threw themselves into the uh, the hybrid world and the diesel world, and that's been disrupted by one Elon Musk with electric cars. And they're so far behind, they're now trying to buy in people who can bring up their electric manufacturing side. So German industry is suffering. So what about uh, you mentioned Brexit before, saying you don't think there's going to be you know a big impact from Brexit? There certainly wasn't the impact that you know being forecast by some economists when af- after the vote, mm. uh, and you don't think there's going to be too much impact apart from Northern Ireland, which we've talked about in the past. So it yeah. po- might be political problems. But but I'm just wondering about this. We've got um, 11% of the exports from the UK is cars. Mm. A lot of that is cars which are making their way to Europe, by and large to Europe, in fact, for, out of the exports. That's $45 billion worth of exports of cars mm. going to Europe. Uh, add planes and other forms of transportation. You're looking at uh, 18% of the UK exports. We make a lot of stuff that either flies or drives, Mm -hmm. and most of it is going to Europe. Yeah. And obviously it's all supply chain dependent. If you start to put, aside from tariffs, if you put paperwork in the middle, you make that supply chain harder. Mm. I can see, I can't see why a car manufacturing plant based in Britain primarily to not only serve the domestic market, but to export to Europe with a supply chain using companies that are based in Europe would continue to operate in Britain. Yeah, that's that's a danger. Like the one thing which might make them continuing is the devaluation of the pound. Yeah, at the moment the pound went up after Boris got elected. You know, um, went down again pretty quickly though. To yeah, where it was and I before. think it could go yeah. down further. And it's you know, if you have it's like a thirty percent, the tar- what what would be the tariff going into the into Europe? Is it ten percent on cars? I might might be even less than that. Actually, the the big tariffs are are in agriculture, yeah. aren't they? So I think, and of course, the UK is an import importer of agriculture. I think overall, if you average it out, it's about three and a half or four percent. It's quite it? tiny. Yeah. yeah. So like, but the supply chain disruption, the paperwork getting in the middle. Yeah, that's the point. Yeah. yeah. So the, it's it's not the, the price change; it's the bureaucratic yeah that slows down things. But companies will rapidly. You've got to. Choose. And that gets back to the you know the and we've talked about this the economic complexity argument. Yeah. yeah. You know, if you haven't got that economic complexity, you could argue, well, we've got it now because we're part of. Europe, we're, we're sort of one big free trading yeah. block. We've got this, the, this is like uh, John. What's his name? Uh, not John Lewis. Um, the guy's been arguing in favour of uh, reduction in the exchange rate uh, for some. I've forgotten his name uh, for some years, decades now, saying we've got an overvalued exchange rate courtesy of the financial sector, and the only way we're going to revive British manufacturing is to be able to devalue. And he was, for that reason, a fan of the um, of Brexit. And so that's it's one of these things. There are arguments in both directions, mm. and I think if you if you face the prospect of moving your entire factory from from Farnham to um, to Frankfurt um, versus getting the paperwork ironed out 
um, the paperwork is actually easier than the factory moves. Yeah, so. you wouldn't. Yeah, it's, you wouldn't necessarily move the factory if you've got a working production now. Mm. Not in Farnham, Sunderland, mm. perhaps. I don't think they make there anything. Far- Farnham is where the stockbrokers are. Ah, um, right. But yeah. Um, yeah, you you wouldn't do that, but you wouldn't also create a new factory or develop a new car. So over time. It's not going to happen tomorrow, but no, you no. can imagine over time that uh, people are going to make decisions that they're not going to start new projects in this part of or the world. Or you need to have an industrial policy, which is the sort of thing Mariana Mazzucuto has been arguing for for ages now. And, uh, you know, maybe Boris will surprise us and start trying to develop an industrial policy that, that gives you a, a revival of manufacturing in the context of a lower exchange rate. Um, so it's, you know, that's what has to happen. You have to, you have to start investing in manufacturing. Uh, which Britain has let run down from 20% of GDP to 10 in the last 30 years. Well, I'm no Boris fan, but I do wonder whether, in fact, you know, he's because he's not a true conservative, is he? I mean, he's certainly not talking austerity anymore. It's almost like uh, he's from a different party. You know, he's not from the Conservative Party that foisted austerity on the UK for the last decade. He's, yeah, and he's I think talking also about investing. The, the, I mean, this, this comes back to, Dom, is it Dominic Cummings? Who's mm. the, I mean, I think he's a real brain behind thrones in this one. And Cummings, I think, was the, the was the, obviously the strategy for Brexit, but a large part of it was we can take away the Labour heartland. Mm. And that we, we, but that was just strategy to win an election. That wasn't strategy to well, now, help now an economy it's a recover. Now you want to hang on to that power. Yeah. Okay, now Boris wants to... There's a to, difference, isn't there, between Boris prom- wants to die promising, and- promising, developing a strategy to win an election and making promises yeah. that you think are so going you, to win votes really- and actually delivering it and uh, and letting the economy yeah. survive. And no, I, suspect- I, I would never, I would never hang, hoist my petard on, um, on, uh, on Boris. Mm. But looking at Cummings' work, um, mm. he does... He's got a bit of a brain, Okay. Uh, I'm just wondering whether his brain is just at winning elections and yeah, whether, or whether on, he on the says, follow okay, through and delivery. Yeah, so it, it's now going to be an interesting struggle. Is it just all image and we then go and screw you with austerity anyway yeah. on the other side? Or will it be let's try to revive industrial manufacturing in the, in the northwest with the benefit of lower exchange rate and negotiate our own trade deals, the latter being irrelevant in my opinion. The former maybe has... You know, 40 new hospitals, which are actually, well, we've done, you know, We've we've done the paperwork on on forty new hospitals. Mm. You know we haven't actually got anything in the budget for it. You I know, know all I that know. sort of stuff. Mm. Okay, now Australia and Canada housing bubbles recession coming their way. I believe so. I mean this year, twenty twenty. Australia, Australia managed to avoid the credit impact of a decline in house prices uh, by when Morrison unexpectedly won the election. Uh, a dramatic turnaround in sentiment about the housing market because no more expectation of the abolition of negative gearing, which for those who don't know Australia's tax laws means you can write off your losses on a house against all your income, not mm. just the income from the house. So that that's a huge benefit out of having a – the government basically subsidises you losing money on being a landlord yeah. in Australia. Um, so that was going to go. We'd already had a 10% fall in house prices. The momentum was definitely towards negative credit in the housing sector. Then Morrison won and you've now got a reverse causation. People thought, oh, the price rise falls aren't going to continue and bang, back into pumping the market up again. And credit is now rising in Australia once more. So yeah. Positive. So yeah. November, 1.7% year-on-year increase across the whole of Australia. In, in house, house prices. prices? or Yeah, in house prices. Yeah, 2.7% for Sydney, 2.2% for Melbourne. It's yeah. the biggest monthly rise since 2003. That yeah. would sort of, sort of hint that... Um, you know, people aren't too concerned about it. Well, what's that? But what that is this, you can have rising house prices forever, so long as you're having rising household debt forever. 
Mm. And Australia has already got to number two in the world against with only Switzerland having a higher level. Number three, historically, Denmark is the only country with a higher house, household debt to, in, to GDP ratio than Australia yeah. uh, and Switzerland. So if Australia is willing to continue pumping up the housing debt, then they can continue pumping up house prices and the credit people take out to buy the house, the extra debt they take on, will stimulate the remainder of the economy and they can continue stumbling forward. But what you're seeing in the Australian retail figures is basically what they're calling a retail recession. Uh, people are borrowing money. There's so much money is going to pay off the mortgage, even with low interest rates, that people aren't shopping anymore. So no. car sales have been going down for, what, about a year? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And there's been tax cuts, and it had no impact because people just said, I've got a bit more money in my pocket. I'll pay off the debt. I'll pay off the debt. So what you're getting mm. is stagnation. You're not necessarily mm. getting a, a, a credit a collapse like the 2008 crush. What you've got is stagnant demand, and you're just getting worse and worse than stagnant demand, and that will feed back to the unemployment rate. And then if the unemployment rate means people can no longer service those mortgages they've taken out, Mm. Um, particularly those who are facing interest rate resets, which is still happening yeah. on a grand scale. It's not happening yet, though. I mean, there, there were unemployment figures a week or two back, which were, you know, showed the unemployment rate had actually fallen. In, but you in hadn't Australia. increased in the underemployment rate. Yeah, yeah. There was a massive number of part-time jobs versus Yeah, so a huge full-time. part of it is the mm. whole gig economy, and that's mm. partly why wage rises aren't happening around the world, because working-class people no longer can organise with the union. They're being screwed by organised employers, and they, they're, not, they're afraid to even bargain for a wage rise. No. So what you've got, you're not getting the inflation you got beforehand. So one of my definite predictions we didn't mention in our discussion beforehand is persistent deflation. And that'll keep on going until energy kicks in. Right. In Australia or? Global. Right. Particularly, Australia's surely got deflation coming the way because you don't want to take the risk of going and asking for a wage rise and the boss saying, oh, piss off, mm. uh, hire somebody else, and bang, you go back and tell the your husband that you... Uh, can no longer service the mortgage. Yeah. So the, 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 we have a totally cowed workforce, which means no wage rises. Well, I mean, it, I mean, it, you can almost see that, can't you, in those part-time jobs because you can't imagine that most people would rather have a part-time job than a full-time job mm. unless they're incredibly wealthy. Mm. And we know they're not because the income figures aren't showing that. So yeah. um, so people are taking part-time work. So that's sort of le- leading its way towards that deflation, isn't it? Yeah, and, so I, I think that's – Australia might avoid a, a serious – like a, a, a massive recession. They're going to avoid – the sort of 2007 downturn that America had, but they're going to slump into serious stagnation, worse than the stagnation of the rest of the planet. But what's wrong with that? I mean, it, isn't it a bit of living within our means if we have a a, a period of stagflation? I mean, we're not getting any better. No, not stagflation. Stag- oh, okay, I suppose stag deflation. Stag That's deflation. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. But we're not. You know, we're not. We're not getting any better off. Well, what, but, what it actually means, you've, you've, you're in, you're in, you've got a capitalist economy on government life support. Because mm. the only thing left is going to be running a government deficit. And at the moment, the government there is obsessed with running a surplus. So the surplus is taking money out of the economy. The trade sector is actually one thing that's keeping Australia buoyant because for a change, it's got a trade surplus right now. Not a large one, but it's happened for a while. If there's a collapse in asset price, in commodity prices, then bang, that disappears. That leaves you with only one other source of money to boost the economy. That's the government running a deficit and they're trying to run a surplus. So all the monetary cards... All it takes is a shift in that attitude, doesn't it? All it takes is a shift in that attitude. Yeah, but whether, the, whether it would come from a and this conservative is where government. This is why I now differ with MMT, because modern monetary theory doesn't worry about a trade deficit. They think actually think a trade deficit is a sensible thing because you're giving pieces of paper and getting goods back in the other direction. If that hits, if you get that recessionary level hitting and you have a plunge in commodity prices, you're going to have a trade deficit. I believe that will also mean that a devaluation in the Australian dollar. 
and then it's more expensive to bring imports in. Mm. So you get a bit of you get imported inflation out of that, but not domestic inflation, and that will you know. Again, and that's when people's living standards get hit. Yeah, and Cost, then, cost, I, cost then I think yeah. you're going to see political yeah. turmoil out of that. So the government will go back into running a deficit rather than a surplus. They'll blame Labor somehow. They'll mm. always blame Labor, uh, but that will well, be. Boris has Boris has been blaming uh, Labor in uh, in the UK and has not not been in power for ten years. Yeah, I'm not quite sure at what point you can start laying blame for somebody else. Look, the uh, continued failure of Bitcoin is another mm. prediction for uh, for 2020. Yeah. So uh, it's worth about nine and a half thousand pounds in late 2017. It fell below three thousand. Then he rose again to about 9,300, and now it's around 5,500. Why are, it beggars belief, why are people investing in it? it, it I mean, your, your term, it's a Ponzi scheme. It's a the Ponzi. only reason it exists is for people to invest in it. It's not, it's not a currency that we use. Yeah. It's somebody has created something and said, here's a scarce resource. Invest in it because there can't be. You know, they're not, not making be rap- more Bitcoin. Yeah, you know, they're well, not a lot. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's 21 million of them. The, 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 the trick in Bitcoin that makes it an absolutely perfect speculative vehicle is you can buy a billionth of it. You don't. I don't know about the smallest unit you can buy. It's called a satoshi. I think the smallest unit you can buy. But you can buy trivial amounts. You want to buy a house. You have got to buy a house. You can't mm. buy a thousandth of a house. You can buy a thousandth of a bitcoin or a ten thousandth of a bitcoin, right. which means the speculative demand can hit the hit the price. But it is a bit like betting on uh, two flies going up a wall, isn't it? I mean, you know, it. it, it you, the only reason you're putting the money in is because it's there. Well, see, this, the, 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 what I see when I look at the Austrian mob who are actually I've had some discussions with Craig Wright as you know uh, who claims to be the inventor of Bitcoin and he's a very intelligent man no two ways about that he seems to be a fraud by a whole lot of people in the Bitcoin world as well I'm going to I'll wait and see what happens in terms of whether that gets proved one way or the other Um, but there's an Austrian philosophy to this that money should be gold Bitcoin is digital gold Let's buy in and get Bitcoin now, and the price will rise over time. That's the mentality. And they call this, they've got this thing, HODL. Have you seen the HODL no. hashtag? Know what it stands for? No. Hold on for dear life. <laughs> so when I first saw HO. Because it's a roller coaster ride. Roller, it is. The, the, their idea is you buy it and you watch the price rise over time, and you'll be a multimillionaire having bought a, a, a Bitcoin. Now, some people made enormous amounts of it because when it first started being sold, it was, you know, cents. It, it cost you more than one Bitcoin to buy a pizza. And there were people that did indeed buy a pizza with the Bitcoin, and that pizza effectively cost them, you know, nineteen thousand dollars in in later terms. Um, but people, but I, don't, I don't get it because I mean, but I mean, you could take anything. It, I mean, ignoring the you know the, uh, the the clever smarts behind how it's created and mm. maintained and transacted. Yeah, you could take anything. You could say, okay, Steve Keen's shirt collection, and he's clearly not buying any new shirts because he's wearing the same ones he's always worn. Yeah, so it's a limited tighter. Dim- they're getting tighter, <laughs> limited demand. Uh, therefore, you know, let's put them on the open market. They they're going to go gangbusters and because they're such a. And that's pretty much the problem because the and this Craig Wright himself uh, claims that what went wrong is that people all thought that the the, the idea was this behind bitcoins you can't trust bank ledgers so let's have an open ledger and and you have people competing to be the ones who first get what they call a a, a nonce at the beginning of a stream of randomly generated numbers that means they're the ones who found the right code so they get a reward from the bitcoin Mm. the mining that's that's where the money comes in from the miners and he said he only envisaged a couple of hundred at most but in fact there's tens of thousands of them around the world of doing this mining because of the returns on mining. And that's where he said the costs have come from. 
Uh, it, it's set up in such a way that it takes 10 minutes to work out the calculation. So the more people, the higher the price, the more more people, more energy is consumed. It's a relationship between energy consumption and the price. And uh, he says that it, you only envisage a couple of hundred at most. You got tens of thousands instead. What that means is that the cost of transactions is, is incredible. It costs each Bitcoin, like per per Bitcoin, not not the individual transactions, but a total Bitcoin, apparently costs the same as running an American household for two weeks. Yeah. The total energy consumption is greater than Switzerland. Um, and the number of transactions... So it's really bad for climate change. Yeah. It's, oh, the other, yeah, it's bits of paper and much, much safer. But, but, but aside from... Uh, but just generally the idea of an alternate currency... Yeah. I mean, you've got to, if you're, uh, so you, anyone can create a currency, and, you know, as, mm. as it's often said, it's getting someone else to accept, accept that it's, it's a, problem, yeah. the problem, it is, is the big issue. But you also need, if, you, if you're if you going to have a workable currency, that currency's got to grow. You can't have a, 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 set, a set amount of that currency. Well, you could, because- you could. The theory was, and this is the whole gold attitude that's in, infecting the Bitcoin crowd, uh, if, if you had lots of transactions. Okay. Yeah. Now, what's actually if movement, happening? Okay. You yeah. know how many transactions it's supporting at the moment, Bitcoin globally, per second? Don't know. No idea. 2.7 right. transactions per second. There's probably that many. Well, it wouldn't be in Farnham, but then, you know, Waterloo, then yeah. 2.7 transactions a second, maybe. but less, less than 80,000 transactions a day. Um, that's where it's fallen apart. Right. Because so, a, the, so if you had to, but even so, you know, you need that. Okay, so you need to speed up that turnover. But we know generally on, on currencies around the world, the turnover of transactions has been slowing and slowing and slowing. In See, the actual money it has, but so, there's, there's, there's a conflict between, like money is a unit of account. Bitcoin clearly qualifies. Money as a store of value, Bitcoin qualifies. Money as a means of transactions, mm. 2.7, forget it. Yeah. Okay. So what they've, they've- But I mean, would you ever uh, replace? So for example, you've got, you know, Facebook saying, well, let's look at Libra, let's create yeah. our own currency. Which will be a, based on transactions. Will any of those work? Well, that's just they're possible. Libra like, was target was five thousand transactions a second. Mm. Now that's not enough to cover the entire globe, but it's closer than two point seven transactions. But we are a always going to have sovereign currencies, aren't we? Because we've got to pay our tax, and uh, and until, that's the thing. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and that's the point that modern monetary theory makes quite validly that um, government money is required to pay taxes. When you mm. look at the actually, you, you can't even use credit money when you when you pay your taxes. You're actually transferring government created money back to the government and the tax office is not going to say oh can you pay you can pay in libra if well they want. could i mean this is but they it, won't but they won't so you've now got the situation and again wright makes this comment himself he said he didn't design bitcoin to enable fraud criminality and the shutdown of government he wanted a legitimate world uh where this stuff is accepted and legally enforceable and people can be caught for bribery fraud and crime uh, but the people who've gone to Bitcoin, Bitcoin itself rather than the other variations, uh, they've all said, oh, black, black economy, you know, get past government, anarchism is wonderful, you know, right-wing anarchism. Uh, those sorts of philosophies are there. And I think they're digging themselves into a hole because if they continue supporting less and less transactions, then all it is is a store of value. Mm. If you can't actually use it for, for shopping, it'll never take over from fiat money. 
let alone other rival currencies, and at some point it's going to collapse. So mm. I, th- I think the end point is zero. I, I agree with, um, uh, with Nero Rubini on that one. So if you've got Bitcoin, get rid of it because it could be worthless. Yeah, and then with that, that sentiment takes hold, then it'll plunge. Yeah. Now, it could continue on because of this Austrian obsession, this Austrian clique that is, is, is fundamentally the behind the monetary system and alternative monetary systems. But yeah, I, I don't see it surviving. Bitcoin SV, which is the new one that Craig Wright's brought on, which is aiming for 5,000 transactions a second and targeting a billion. Uh, if something like that happens, then it could work, but not something that doesn't support transactions. Right. I, I just wonder whether people, I mean, we get, uh, it's complicated enough for most people when they're traveling overseas to start yeah. dealing in different currencies. The idea on a day-to-day basis, yeah. you're going you're to deal with your life in two separate currencies. You're going to pay your mortgage and pay your uh, pay your rent with uh, and and pay your tax with one, and then you're going to go shopping with another one. Yeah, I mean, simplicity so. is one of the major appeals of money. The yeah. argument they make in the opposite direction, and it's got a validity to it, is if you have an app that does all that stuff for you, just point the phone at the device and I do that with my with, with my currency today. Yeah, you already got it with the current one, so yeah. why do you need another one? So yeah, yeah but that's that's what they argue. But yeah, okay. yeah, okay. One other prediction then for next year. Mm. So we've got the uh, you know the 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 bushfires in Sydney, mm. which are just uh, chaotic. We've had bush fires in winter in California. Yeah. The climate's definitely changing. I mean, but- Yeah, this may well be the crunch here. I mean, like looking in Sydney at the moment, uh, I'm I'm personally very badly affected by this from being a Sydney sider, having family there, having family in the bush there. Mm. Uh, I'm terrified on a daily basis over this. And I can feel- even this distance, I can feel the shift in attitude in Australia. And you're going to go from rednecks saying there's no such thing as climate change to rednecks saying it's bloody well happening, stop it. Mm. Um, so, I, and, and of course, the, the California fires as well, uh, the floods here, the, the floods. And the, the intriguing thing is we focus on sea level rise. That's been the focus, you know, what's going to, for sea defences. But what's going to happen as well as desertification? Regions that used to get rainfall don't get it anymore. They turn into desert by burning. Mm. So, you know, the old the day after tomorrow horror story about a, you know, super cyclone freezing America, it yeah. may actually be super fires destroying temperate regions. And Australia may be with the very first one on the I line. I seem to remember an ocean liner going over Times Square in that movie. Yeah. It was perhaps a little far-fetched. A little far-fetched. But, but, um, but maybe somewhere towards that. So, so, but how does that change the economy? Because this is a well, significant change. Then, then if we the, get... If there's a realisation this year, for, in 2020... That's an existential threat. Yeah. And with an existential threat, you do what Winston Churchill did. We shall fight them on the beaches. We shall actually fight the beaches, mm. it'll become. So I think uh, we'll see a massive increase in government spending, which will be necessary to fight climate change because we've left it far too late for the private sector to do its market-driven you know, higher carbon price thing. So that may mean actually a, a huge increase, starting increase in government deficits uh, in a way we haven't seen for a long time. But it won't happen straight away. It'll happen like most likely Australia will be the first country to start doing it. But, you know, new job opportunities, new investment opportunities, I mean, it could be good for the economy. But at the other stage, the cause of climate change is pumping too much carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. We're doing it because we're using it to create energy, uh, which was needed for manufacturing. If we realise we can't simply have to really stop it, I mean really, really stop it and cut back by a factor of two or three on the amount of carbon we pump into the atmosphere, Mm. that means energy rationing and that means a fall in... I don't see that happening in 2020. All go to bed at half past seven. At huh? night, we'll all be going to bed at half past seven at night because yeah. the power goes off, and yeah, no. uh, then yeah. what happens? Yeah, that's that's not good for the planet either. Well, I think that, yeah, <laughs> don't, don't don't take me down that route just yet. Uh, but uh, but I, I do see that uh, there'll be 
a, a realisation that you simply can't live with the crazy constraints on government spending that people have put in the place when you face an existential threat. And they're back to Winston Churchill. The deficit in 1940, government deficit, was 40% of GDP. Hmm. We could be there again. Not, right. to, not next year, but give us the next decade. All right. Okay, well, a mixed bag. It's going to be an interesting year. Thanks, Steve. You're welcome, mate. And that's it, the first debunking economics podcast of a new year. And we'll be back again next week with another one. Do join us. He's Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. We'll see you then. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.